0: Well, please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. As you're turning there, I'd like to remind you of some of the context behind the city of Philippi. I alluded to this earlier earlier in our sermon series, but I think it's relevant to bring it up again here tonight. Now, Philippi was a Roman colony. And therefore, many of the residents of Philippi had Roman citizenship. So they resided in Philippi, which was a long distance away from Rome, yet they had Roman citizenship. Now, Paul plays on this idea to illustrate the Christians' dual citizenship uh, during this time here on earth. So Philippians chapter 3, verse 17 through chapter 4, verse 1 Please turn your attention to the reading of God's holy and inspired Word. The Apostle Paul says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, I'm sure I do not need to remind you of what's coming up this Tuesday, right? The presidential election. This event, which has been on the center or the top of news headlines for many weeks and, and even months, is really the capstone of an already tumultuous year in our country, And as we are citizens of this world, where many of us are citizens of this country, we're called to actively engage in society, in culture. Therefore, our earthly citizenship is likely on the forefront of our minds going into this week. Although God has indeed ordained that we be members of societies, of cultures, of countries, There is a temptation that comes along with this earthly citizenship. And the temptation is to make our earthly citizenship ultimate, to make the politics surrounding our earthly citizenship ultimate. For many non Christians, politics and those things which concern their earthly citizenship, it becomes their religion. It becomes their functional savior that they're trusting in, they're hoping in, to bring about their version of the new creation. And we as Christians can fall into this line of thinking as well. Where we begin to think of our politics as our religion, it may not replace our formal religion, but it becomes elevated alongside of it. We forget that our earthly citizenship is temporal. It's not everlasting. We begin to think of ourselves as Israel in the promised land, forgetting that the promised land was pointing forward to heaven, not America. In our passage this evening, Paul is reminding us that we have a dual citizenship. He's not referring to citizenships in two countries, No, he's telling us that we have a citizenship in heaven. And in in so doing, he's not undermining your earthly citizenship. He's not undermining your citizenship in America or whatever whatever other country you may uh, belong to. Rather, he's reminding us that our greatest identity and our greatest citizenship is not here. It belongs in heaven. So if you look with me in your Bibles at verse 20, Paul says this. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. This is the controlling theme of our passage this evening. Notice that. He says that your citizenship is in heaven, not will be in heaven. It is in heaven right now, even though you're residing here on earth. Paul says this very thing in Ephesians 2, where he says, We have even right now been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. You know, as I mentioned, the Philippians, they resided in Philippi, yet where was their greatest citizenship? It was in Rome, not in the city in which they were currently residing. It's a great illustration of what Paul's teaching us about the Christians' citizenship. And this Lord's Day, I think, is a very fitting Lord's Day to reflect on our heavenly citizenship. You know, we are committed here to ordinarily preaching God's word, electio continuum, meaning passage by passage. And when we do this, we can see God's providence in selecting texts that are aptly suited for what we are going through. I think we see that here this evening as we are reflecting on what it means to be a citizen of heaven as we go into this election week. So as we think about what it means to be a citizen of heaven, we will see that this great status comes with a distinct ethic, hope, and endurance. This great citizenship, this great status comes with a distinct ethic, hope, and endurance. So, those are the, the three main points I want us to focus our hearts and minds on this evening. So, first, what is the ethic of a citizen of heaven? Well, Paul in our passage contrasts the ethic of a citizen of heaven with what it is not. And you'll see this in verses 18 through 19 if you look with me in your Bibles. At those verses, verse 18 says, For many of whom I often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. What Paul is saying is that to be merely a citizen of this world means that you are, in effect, an enemy of the cross. This is a great antithesis between those who merely have their citizenship in this world and those who have dual citizenship. Therefore, what is the ethic of an enemy of the cross, of those who merely belong to this passing age? Well the rest of verse 19 tells us, First we read that their end is destruction. They have no hope beyond this life. And that's why their God. What they're trusting in is merely an earthly idol, whatever form it takes. They have no real hope. But second, we read that their God is their belly. And this word for belly that Paul uses in the original language denotes one's fleshly or sinful desires. Now, Paul uses this contrast between the flesh and the spirit uh, throughout his epistles. And he's not contrasting the body versus our soul. Rather, the contrast that he's positing uh, here is a contrast between our sinful nature and the Spirit's work of new life that he's begun in our regeneration. So for the Christian, we are engaged in this great war between our sinful nature, which will continue to plague us this side of glory, and the Spirit's work of new life. But for those who do not have the Spirit they only act according to their belly, that is, their sinful desires and passions. The whole course of their lives, according to Paul, are filled with seeking to satisfy their prideful ego, egos, their lustful passions, their gluttonous bellies, their never satisfied ambition, their sloth, and their laziness. This could go on and on. They can't act contrary to who they are. And this is who they are. And Paul continues. Along the same line, he says that they glory in their shame. Word for shame is immorality. They boast, they revel, they glory in immorality. We don't have to look very far in our own culture to see how our world glories in immorality. But lastly, Paul sums up this list by saying that their minds are only on earthly things. They cannot raise their mind beyond earthly things. They, They do not seek to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. Paul's not saying that it's bad to think about earthly things. We ultimately should have that end of the glory of God behind all of our considerations. Well, I think it's important to make a distinction here as we consider how Paul is describing our unbelieving society. And there there may be some tension in our minds as we think about this because Paul's description here is quite bleak. It's quite bleak. And we probably all have examples or people in mind, maybe they're personal or, or not, of members of our unbelieving society who do not know the Lord but do a lot of external good. They act very virtuously. So how do we square that with what Paul is saying here about those who merely have their citizenship in this world. First off, I think it's important to note that, yeah, members of an un- un- unbelieving society, non-Christians, they can do a lot of external good. This is due to the, the spirit's work of common grace. It's interesting, in Genesis 4, who are the first people to develop architecture, metallurgy, and music? It's not the seed of the woman, It's the seed of the serpent. It's Cain's descendants. This is the work of the Spirit's common grace. However, what Paul is getting at here is not external actions per se, but our internal motivations. And when it comes to our internal motivations, they cannot ultimately please God. They're not doing it to the glory of God, it's ultimately for themselves, it's selfish. To ultimately please God, we need the Holy Spirit, and we need a great high priest interceding for us on the right hand of the Father. So though they may do external good, they can't ultimately please God in terms of their motivations. Well, this is what our ethic is not to be patterned after. So if this is the bad example, what is it to be patterned after? What should we be looking for in terms of our ethic? Well, Paul says our ethic is to be in accordance with the example of Paul and other godly figures. We see this in verse 17. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul is saying that we need to not only notice, but then imitate. Notice and imitate the example of Paul and other people who are displaying this ethic of the kingdom. Now, one of the themes which I'm sure you've all picked up on at this point of the book of Philippians is this theme of example. Paul's continually been pointing us to examples, not only in himself, but in Timothy, in Epaphroditus at the end of chapter 2. And all of these imperfect examples lead us to the perfect example of Christ, which we saw in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. This perfect example of self-sacrifice, humility, and love as he came to this earth as a servant and died that lowly death on a cross. And here in this passage, Paul is again pointing us to example. And what example is he pointing us to? Again, he's pointing us ultimately to the example of Christ. Every godly example, whether it's Paul or someone else, finds its end in the perfect example of the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons why Paul is even emphasizing examples here is because of the context of the Philippian church. We have to remember, the Philippian church didn't have a fully developed New Testament canon. They likely had only a few letters, if if any. So they couldn't just pick up Romans and read it or pick up the Gospel of John and learn about the example of Christ. Their relationship with the Apostle Paul was very important because through Paul it gave them a lens to the example of Christ. So how Paul thought, how Paul spoke, how Paul conducted himself, that was very important for learning the ethic of a citizen of heaven. We, however, we have the entire canon, not only the Old Testament canon, but the entire New Testament canon. We don't have apostles, obviously, but we do have the New Testament canon. And it's in the scriptures particularly in the New Testament, that we can see the example of Jesus, of Paul, the other apostles, how they loved and displayed humility. And we are called to imitate their example in this area. Or, as James says it, we're not only to be hearers of the word, that is, notice the example, but we are to be doers of God's word. We are to imitate the law of God and the examples that are positively put forward to us. Again, this is why each Lord's Day in our liturgy, we read from God's law. We need to be reminded as citizens of heaven what our ethic is, what we're called to live according to. The ethic of this world is really an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The ethic of this world is do whatever it takes to get ahead. We saw that just uh, a few moments ago in Paul's description. But we, as citizens of heaven, are called to turn the other cheek. We're called to self-sacrifice. We're called to humility and love that's patterned after this example of Christ, which he displayed during his time here on earth. So again, Paul would want us to consider, do you display this mindset of Christ? Do you seek to do good to everyone, especially those in the household of God, as Paul says in Galatians? And consider for a moment the logic of Paul's reasoning here. He's saying that we are citizens in heaven. That is our status. And we are called to live according to that status. This is how Paul reasons in Colossians chapter 3. Listen to what he says in the first two verses of that chapter. He says, if then you had been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Paul's saying if you've been raised, if your citizenship is in heaven, think and act according to who you are. He's saying be who you are. In your thoughts, in your actions, in your words. First Peter says a very similar thing. He says conduct yourselves with fear, and reverence in the time of your exile. Peter clearly sees that we are not in our homeland. We are residing here on earth, but our greatest citizenship belongs in heaven. And therefore, we are called to display this ethic during the time of our exile. Well, seeking to do this, to live according to this ethic, is difficult. We all can attest to its difficulty. How much more difficult would it be if we had no terminus, no end point? You know, boys and girls, imagine doing a chore or a job that has no ending. You just do it forever. Right? That's misery. So too, as we seek to pursue this ethic, we need the hope of an end point. And this is exactly what Paul does for us. He tells us what our hope should be as citizens of heaven. So I'd like us to now turn our attention to to the hope that we are called uh, to remember. And Paul defines our hope in this passage in verse 20 by this word, await. And this word that Paul uses for await could really be rendered as eagerly await. This great expectation that we have as a citizens of heaven, of God's kingdom. In fact, this word is only used about is only used eight times in the New Testament. And seven of those times finds its object in the second coming of Christ. This is a word that, that the New Testament uses to, to describe the Christians' great expectation. For Christ's return. And Paul uses this word in the same way here as you see that its object is also the second coming of Christ. If you look with me in your Bibles at verses 20 through 21, Paul says this very thing. He says that we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul's not just pointing us to the second coming. He's pointing us to a particular aspect of what Christ will do when he returns. And what's that that aspect? The resurrection of the body. We have this great promise that at the return of Christ, we will have resurrected bodies that mirror the very likeness of the glorified body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. We have the promise that our bodies will be transformed to mirror the very glorified body of Christ. This is why we've taken pains in terms of uh, our broader uh, understanding of, of theology and historical theology through the ages to protect the true and proper humanity of Christ. Our hope is that we'll have bodies like Christ. And we have no hope or promise of being gods or godlike. And therefore, it's very important that Christ's human nature is not part divine, that Christ has a true and proper human nature that's distinct but not completely separate from his divine nature. Because our hope is to be like Christ one day. And this is what we eagerly await, as citizens of God's heavenly kingdom. We'd like to spend a few more few moments just uh, thinking and fleshing out why this hope is so important for us, as as citizens who are really a pilgrim people during this age. As we consider this idea of hope, this hope as an eager expectation, I think we all can attest, on an earthly perspective that we look forward to and eagerly await lots of things in life as part of who we are. boys and girls, what are some things that you eagerly await for in life? It might be, you know, in the springtime, I'm sure it's always summer vacation. It might be going to a friend's house. It might be an upcoming birthday. Part of being a human being is, is looking forward to things, eagerly awaiting things. This is part of what it means to be in the image of God. But oftentimes, as we think about all those things that we look forward to in life, all those things in which we eagerly await in this life, oftentimes, our expectation is greater than the event itself. I don't know if you've experienced that before. Let's say there's an event or something that you're looking forward to, maybe months, weeks, even days. And when the the event comes you're sort of disappointed. The expectation that was building for so long was almost greater than the event itself. Furthermore, every good thing in this life comes to an end. Everything. But when we consider the hope that we have that accords with our heavenly citizenship, no matter how much no matter how high our expectations are for the second coming of Christ, for the new creation, it will be infinitely less than the joyous reality that that day will actually be. And that's good news. And furthermore, the new creation is everlasting. It's really the only thing that can be everlasting and not be torturous. Think about doing anything in this life forever. The new creation will be incomprehensibly great. This idea of our hope of this great and glorious day that's ahead of us really transforms how we view the second coming of Christ. By faith alone, we are made citizens of heaven. This status is not something that we are able to uh, bestow upon ourselves. This is a gracious gift of God. And Paul is saying citizens of heaven, a mark of a citizen of heaven is um, uh, is eagerly awaiting the return of our great king. Therefore, we should not view the second coming of Christ with trepidation, with fear. We should view it with with joy and longing and expectation. sometimes common rhetoric within Christian circles about the second coming of Christ uh, has to do with, a warning that you know, Christ better not find you sinning when he comes back. But when we consider the nature of our own hearts, we realize that every good work that we do is corrupt, it's imperfect, it's defiled in sin. And we realize that we already are citizens of heaven. The second coming, yes, for unbelievers will be a strict judgment uh, uh, manifesting the justice of God. But for believers, God's going to manifest his mercy as we are brought into the fullness of what it means to be a citizen of heaven. I love how the Heidelberg Catechism speaks about the the final judgment. The question itself betrays how it views Christ's return. It says, what comfort is it to you that Christ shall come to judge the living and the dead? For the believer, the second coming of Christ is a great comfort. Therefore, I think Paul would want us to consider how we have been uh, acting. Are, are we displaying an attitude of hope as we conduct ourselves in this time of exile? In Romans 13, Paul says that we are to rejoice in hope. I think Paul would have a similar mindset here. If you recall at the first phrase of chapter 3, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord. I think what Paul wants us to see is that every passage is really connected to that statement, that sort of umbrella statement. So we consider the joy of our justification. We also consider it how we are to rejoice in our sanctification, even in times of suffering. I think here Paul would want us to also rejoice in this hope that we have of what's ahead of us in this pilgrimage. Well, the object of our hope, which we just got done considering, is Christ's return, the second coming. And this could happen tomorrow. This could happen a thousand years from now. We don't know the day or the hour. We're not told that. Therefore, what do we do in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, Paul wants us to exercise endurance. Endurance. This is the third and final point I want us to consider this evening, that as citizens of heaven, we're called to endurance. We see Paul make this point in chapter 4, verse 1. As he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord my beloved. Notice that Paul uses this word, therefore, connecting for us this hope that we have as citizens of heaven with our call to endure. What Paul is saying is that the cultivation of hope is the means by which we endure. We endure because of our hope. Now, if we consider this idea and the, the relationship between hope and endurance on our earthly perspective, I think this would make sense. Is really our hope, our eager expectations in life, that get us out of bed in the morning? I mean, think about even on a day-to-day perspective? What gets you through your workday? Well, it's the hope of rest in the evening. What gets you through the week? The prospect of a weekend. What gets you through a particular busy time at work or in life in general? What's the prospect of a vacation or a break on the other side? What gets you through a workout? The realization that the workout isn't forever and there's rest on the other side and the feeling you get, the endorphins afterwards, we are people who are wired for that work-rest relationship. And that hope of what lies beyond is what motivates us, what causes us to endure anything that requires discipline. And when we consider, then, our Christian lives, we see that what causes us to persevere in our Christian lives during a time in which we are away from our homeland, we're a pilgrim people, is this hope of new creation of the second coming of Christ, the resurrection of the body. Paul wants us to know that pilgrims are are in need of hope. The question that this brings about is, how do we cultivate hope? If, If we're called to endure, and hope is the means by which we endure, then we need to be cultivating hope. How do we cultivate hope in this life? I believe we find a clue to this question by considering again what Paul says in, in verse 1. He says that we are to endure in the Lord. Now, Paul uses this phrase quite a few times in Philippians. I think the implication of this is that we do not endure on our own methods or prescriptions. Rather, we need the Lord's methods. We need the prescription of the great physician, as it were. And what are his methods that he has given and prescribed for us? Well, they're the means of grace. It's the means of grace that causes us to cultivate this hope in light of endurance. The means of grace can be thought of as the instruments that God has ordained for us during this time of redemptive history to communicate himself, to communicate his grace to his people. And his means or his instruments are the word and the sacraments in the context of the gathered people of God. It's through these means that the Lord creates and sustains his relationship with his people. So we need the word. We need the public reading, preaching of God's word. And this word is comprised of both law and gospel. So, what does the gospel do for us? Well, the gospel reminds us how we have become citizens of heaven and reminds us of the great hope that we have on the other side of this pilgrimage. And the law continues to remind us of the ethic that we've been called to during this this time of exile. It's always interesting to consider the pastoral epistles because Paul is in the last leg of his ministry kind of nearing the end of the apostolic age, and he's writing to Timothy, this young pastor. And Timothy really is representing the post-apostolic church. And the question that comes to mind is, I wonder what he's going to prescribe for this post-apostolic church. And the thing that he keeps coming back to is for Timothy to devote himself to the public reading and preaching of God's word. This is what the church needs. This is what the church needs to cultivate hope and light of enduring. The second means that the Lord uses the sacraments. We shouldn't think of the sacraments as being somewhat different than the word. The sacraments really are subsumed under the word. As a great church father, Augustine, said that the sacraments are the visible gospel. It's communicating the same message as the word is, but in a way that communicates to more of our senses. The Word communicates to our ears. The sacraments communicate to our eyes, our smell, our taste, our touch. But it's communicating the exact same message that we hear in the Word of God. And in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which we will be partaking of in a few moments, we get a foretaste of this, the realization of our great hope. The marriage supper of the Lamb, the time in which we will be in our heavenly homeland. Our exile will be done. We no longer will be a pilgrim people. It's a supper that gives us the strength to live out the ethic that we're called to live out during this current age. Therefore, it's very fitting that we will indeed be partaking of this great and glorious sacrament as citizens of heaven. So how are you doing in standing from in enduring, in making use of the means that the Lord has prescribed for his people during this age? Well regardless of the outcome this week, regardless of what happens in one month, one year, ten years from now in our society or in our culture, let us never forget that we have a citizenship that transcends our place in this country or any country, as a matter of fact. And this citizenship calls us to a distinct ethic, a glorious hope, and a life of endurance. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank you that you have, by your free grace, made us citizens of your heavenly kingdom. We ask that you would continue to cultivate in us a life that accords with this great and holy calling. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.